Recently, I talked to Armando Perez, who you might know by a few other names. That little chico pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Checking in, checking out. Pitbull, a.k.a. Mr. Worldwide, a.k.a. Mr. 305, is a platinum-selling rapper and producer. He's turned out party anthems in English and Spanish for almost two decades. And one of the ways he's earned that nickname, Mr. Worldwide, is by keeping up a crazy touring schedule. When I was touring heavy, you know, I would say I was out about 290 days of the year. And within the last two or three years, working so hard for many, many years, thank God for that, thanks to the fans for that, I've been able to do about 150 to 175 days. One year, Pitbull played on every continent except Antarctica. Of course, that was before the coronavirus. So where have you been spending the pandemic? I've been down in Miami. These days, Mr. Worldwide is Mr. Stay at Home. And that's a problem in an industry that depends on touring for most of its revenue. So Pitbull, like tons of other artists, is scrambling, trying to figure out a plan to make money when he can't hit the road. I've always had my mind, not plan A, not plan B, not plan C, but plan Z. (laughs) Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Tuesday, August 11th. Coming up on the show, how artists are trying to survive in a music industry that can't tour. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This was supposed to be the best year ever for the music industry, particularly from the live standpoint. Our colleague Ann Steele covers the music industry, and she says that before the pandemic shutdowns, live music was supposed to bring in almost $30 billion this year, a record. It's been an exciting time for the music industry for years, and it's been a growth time, and then it's like all of a sudden, you know, the party pauses. Can you explain how touring became so important for the music industry and for artists? Yeah, so it wasn't always that way. Back in the day, you would tour just to promote more sales of your albums. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, the rise of Napster and online piracy hit record sales really hard. So artists started to rely on touring not just to promote sales of their music, but as a larger piece of their income. Music streaming just accelerated that trend. Album sales plummeted. But Anne says streaming also made touring more lucrative. Because of streaming, artists now have more fans in more places all around the world. So that opens up huge touring opportunities for them. And they can actually see, you know, where are people streaming my music? Where are my fans in the world? And where can I go and sell out shows in markets that I never would have imagined before we had this data? Plus, there's been just all these add-ons in recent years, too. So you sell your ticket, but 
There's also VIP experiences. Maybe you get a tour poster and then you add on merchandising to that too. And it's just, it's a lot that you can make from hitting the road. How much of an artist's income is touring? It's different for every artist, but it can be 70-80% of a lot of artists' income. And that sort of trickles out to everyone involved. You know, the promoters who put on these shows, the ticketing companies, the agents who plan and route these things, and then also record companies who, in some of their record deals after the collapse of CD sales, you know, started partaking in that revenue as well. Touring was the solution to the problem of how to make money in the streaming age. And then, in the space of a few weeks in March, it was gone. And artists had to figure out how to keep themselves and their teams paid and just make it through the end of the year with no concerts. And one of the first bands to try and figure this out thrives on live shows. The Dropkick Murphys. For people who are new to the band, can you describe what the experience is like for fans at one of your shows? Oh, the total opposite is COVID life. Uh, Up close and personal, sweating on each other. uh, A lot of loud singing along, which is uh, spring particles everywhere. (laughs) It's just kind of like, you know, a sweaty pig pile. Ken Casey plays bass and is one of the lead singers for the Dropkick Murphys. He helped form the Celtic punk band over 20 years ago. The band built its reputation through touring, and its highest-profile shows each year happen around St. Patrick's Day. It does five or six concerts in its hometown of Boston. But this March, with the coronavirus spreading, the band had to cancel. That must have been a, a big hit to you guys financially, to lose that week of shows. It was, except, you know, we kind of stepped into a pot of gold, as they say, with, uh, you know, the streaming thing we did. Instead of a week of rowdy concerts, the band live-streamed a single performance on St. Patrick's Day for free. How's it going, folks? Happy St. Patrick's Day! Are you ready, Boston? Are you ready, America? Are you ready, world? The Irish Roma! The show is pretty strange viewing. Everything happening on stage looks normal. Ken is striding around, shouting into the mic. But there's no crowd, no audience, just a few crew members yelling back. How's everyone doing out there? You liking the new music out there in the world? I wasn't talking to you guys, I was talking to the people on the internet. What is it like to try to do a live stream show like that where you only have like a bare bones crew around you and no fans? Well, I got to say, our crew was so great to cheer and clap and make a lot of <laughs> as much noise as possible to make us feel better. But even though there was no one there, when you looked at the camera, you almost could like visualize the people that were on the other side of it, you know? When did you realize how many people were streaming in? We were getting feedback while the show was going that like, there's a lot of people watching, but we didn't know the numbers till probably the next day. When the band added up all the streams from every platform, the total was staggering. 10 million views. That's about a thousand times the number of people who could have attended their week of St. Patrick's Day shows in person. And some of the people streaming weren't the band's usual fans. You know, just being around town or whatever, a neighbor who's, you know, 80 years old, called, great show last night. You're like, holy <laughs> crap, you know. Uh, that 80-year-old was definitely not coming to the concert, you know, at House of Blues on Lansdowne Street. 
All those views translated into real money. The Dropkick Murphys didn't charge for the live stream, but they did offer special merchandise. How much did you make on the merchandise? I, I can't remember offhand, but it was it was a couple hundred thousand dollars gross. Wow. Maybe half the gross of a full tour or something like that. The show was so successful that the Murphys streamed another one two months later, this time out of Boston's Fenway Park. Between those two shows and a virtual gig that they did for a tech conference, Ken says the band's made about half of what it would have made in a whole year of touring. Net-wise, yeah, because, you know, we don't have tour buses going, we don't have travel, we don't have hotels, you don't have all the normal expenses, you know. Do you think it could be enough to really make you whole or at least supplement most of what you would have been making otherwise? I don't think it'll make us whole, but it's allowed us to keep all our crew and staff employed and allowed us to have some kind of income so that we're not going broke. Ken's band made money on its streaming shows by selling merch, not tickets. But some artists have started charging for stream shows, like Garth Brooks. He recorded a concert and played it at 300 drive-in theaters across the country on the same night. The ticket price per car was 100 bucks. One person paying close attention to Garth Brooks's show was Pitbull. We saw what Garth Brooks did as far as a drive-in concert, which I thought was amazing and genius, and he did great. But then you had the streaming that went on with the World Health Organization and the live benefit concerts that they were doing. And I said, okay, here's, here's something. Pitbull ultimately opted to do paid streamed concerts, not a drive-in like Brooks. He's planning four live stream shows this fall with tickets starting at 10 bucks per show. And each one will be something different where the set may be different. And this is just me hypothetically speaking. Nothing is etched in stone right now, but let's just say one is an international night. The other one is more of a, a Latin driven night. Another one is more of an urban driven night. And then the other is just all format. That could be one way on how we're going to flip it. You know, we're literally building the plane while we're flying it. Mm -hmm. This is a learning process. Making each live stream a unique experience could be a workaround for one big problem with the streaming model, getting fans to tune in more than once. Anne says that while some artists will be able to make just as much per stream show as they would playing a live one... The issue is, for a regular summer tour, maybe you're going and playing 30, 40, 50 clubs, and you can only do so many live stream concerts. There's only so much demand for that. So for the whole summer, you're not going to net as much, but on a per night basis, you might be able to generate some significant income. At least make up some of your lost money. Right. But as the pandemic drags on, being able to make just some of their income might not be enough for some artists. So they're turning somewhere else to make money. Wall Street. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. 
well do we know the people we work with every day? We share lunches, jokes, and deadlines, but are we aware of the unseen struggles we often face silently? Stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or feeling misunderstood at work. Through insight, awareness, and empathy, we can start to better see the issues our coworkers are dealing with, and that can make us and our companies healthier too. Join Holly Robinson-Pete and her guests on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Since March, some artists have pulled in a lot of money with stream shows. But unless you can figure out how to get fans to tune in again and again, there's a limit to how much money you can make. So some artists are tapping another asset, their royalties. So royalties are the payments that come in when music is streamed or sold or used somewhere like in a venue, performed live. So it's essentially the money that your catalog generates for an artist. If you're an artist and a mall plays your song over their speakers, you get a cut of that. Same thing if someone streams your song on YouTube or Spotify. Year after year, these small payments trickle in. But some artists could really use that money now, up front, to get through this period with no touring. So they're turning to a tactic pioneered by another musical artist back in 1997. That artist was David Bowie. David Bowie and his banker, David Pullman, made these asset-backed securities. It's like a complex financial instrument. Yeah, definitely. So they are referred to as Bowie bonds, or also sometimes as Pullman bonds for David Pullman, the banker. Investors could buy bonds that were backed with all the royalties Bowie's songs would generate over the next 10 years. He wasn't selling his songs or giving up his copyright. He was just letting investors reap the rewards of his hits temporarily. And it worked. Prudential bought the whole issue of Bowie Bonds, reportedly for $55 million. Bowie Bonds paid an interest rate of 7.9% over that 10-year period. Wow, so that's a pretty good return. Absolutely. In these days, artist catalogs can be even more valuable than they were in Bowie's day. Again, because of music streaming. Now, an artist doesn't just sell however many copies of a CD they can in the first few weeks after putting music out. If their songs are popular enough, they're getting streamed for years and years and years, essentially generating income over a much longer period of time. Right, and like for generations, because there might be somebody who's 15 years old and is just now discovering the Grateful Dead for the first time and streaming them nonstop. And so that's money now for the royalty holders of the Grateful Dead, whereas 30 years ago, they might be buying an album off of resale and they might not have really seen any money from that. Yeah, exactly. And even if you pick up your dad's Grateful Dead record and put that on, you know, the artists aren't generating any more income from that, but they are when that same kid listens to them on streaming. And especially in the middle of a pandemic, a stable asset like that can look really good to investors. A song, you know, it's not tied to the price of oil or the dollar. If the market crashes, people are probably still going to be listening to music. And so now, particularly with the pandemic, investors are seeing music royalties as a relatively safe place to park their money. For artists, these kinds of deals can bring in big money. 
A songwriter on Rihanna's song, Don't Stop the Music, recently auctioned off their slice of the royalties and got $200,000 for it. A producer for REO Speedwagon's album, High Infidelity, did the same thing. Their portion of royalties went for $180,000. And Anne expects more deals like this. All of sort of the publishers and firms and companies that work in buying, selling, offering loans against royalties, they are all saying their phones are ringing off the hook. But for pretty much everyone Anne spoke to across the music industry, drive-ins, stream shows, and leveraging royalties were just ways to get by, not a long-term business model. The real fix for the industry will be getting back to touring. And that can be harder than people think. Some promoters have floated the idea of socially distanced shows, but Ken Casey of the Dropkick Murphys says the math for reduced capacity concerts just might not work. You say, oh, you can play a venue, but it's 25%. Social distancing. Okay, so we'll have to go into a much larger venue. So let's just say Dropkick Murphys in any given city in America draws 3,000 people. So what are we gonna have to go into an arena to play to 3,000 people and pay arena costs? the business model might not add up and we could be going out and going on tour and coming home and, you know, lose money. It's rough for everyone, obviously. There's some industries that aren't affected as much, but, you know, there's other industries that are devastated and I would put music at the top of the list because, you know, I have a feeling we may be the last people to come back. But that day when music can truly come back, nobody has to worry, I think the flip side is people will flock to it like never before. That's all for today, Tuesday, August 11th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Quick note before we go, Spotify, which we mentioned in this episode, is the parent company of Gimlet. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.